Good morning and welcome to the study of Genesis chapter 5. Let's begin at verse 1. Our first hour will be verses 1 to 20. Genesis 5 verses 1 to 20. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them, male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Then the days of Adam after he became the father of Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. And Seth lived 105 years and became the father of Enosh. Then Seth lived 807 years after he became the father of Enosh, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. And Enosh lived 90 years and became the father of Canaan. Then Enosh lived 815 years after he became the father of Canaan, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. And Canaan lived 70 years and became the father of Mahalalel. Then Canaan lived 840 years after he became the father of Mahalalel, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Canaan were 910 years, and he died. And Mahalalel lived 65 years and became the father of Jared. Then Mahalalel lived 830 years after he became the father of Jared, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. And Jared lived 162 years and became the father of Enoch. Then Jared lived 800 years after he became the father of Enoch, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we have in our possession your word, and we know it is the reliable, inspired, Holy Spirit-inspired, true word of God. It is our word for salvation. It's our word for all that we need for life and godliness. Now, Lord, we ask you to draw our attention to it and help us to understand what it says especially this chapter, and especially the connections that we have from Adam, Noah, and Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Teach us all that we need to know by your Holy Spirit. In Christ, amen. Well, in this chapter 5, Genesis chapter 5, we have yet to read the last part of it, but it does go to Noah. This genealogy from Adam to Noah is a significant genealogy because once we read about the flood in chapter 6 to 9, we'll read that all mankind except eight persons were destroyed in a worldwide flood. So then Adam to Noah, and then from Noah to Abraham, which we read about in Genesis 11. And we know from other places in Scripture, such as First Chronicles and Luke chapter 3, that these genealogies are leading to the line of Judah, the line of David, and as well to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. That's why this genealogy is here, to teach us the line from Adam and also to teach us the line not only from Adam and all of us, but also from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Judah, David, and Jesus Christ. That's why this is here. Now, there are a few things that we can observe from this 
genealogy. Well, one thing is you will notice that the name of the son at the age of the father, the name of a specific son at the age of the father is given in this genealogy. This is the same as in Genesis chapter 11. These are the two main genealogies of the Old Testament that actually give this kind of a description about the son. The specific name of a son, one son, and how old the father was when that son was born. That's important because not all of the biblical genealogies, rarely does a biblical genealogy do this. It rarely does it do this. And in this case, it's important because it permits us to have a strict chronology, a strict lineage from one father to the son and so forth, all the way down to Noah, or in the case of Genesis 11, from Noah to Abraham. This is important because there's no gaps, there's no major gaps. There's no missing links or anything like that for us to invent tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of years, let alone billions of years. There's no way possible for us to do that in Genesis 5 and 11. This means that we have a strict, unbroken chain from Adam all the way to Abraham in Genesis 5 and Genesis 11. That's an important observation to make. Well, now first, let's go to chapter 5, verse 1, and notice a few things. Our attention in this first hour will be verses 1 to 5, because that's where the greatest theological import is on this uh, in this chapter. And then we will see in the next section, it will be with Enoch and with Noah. So first now, with Adam. Chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. This is the book. This is a record of the generations of Adam. That means that this record is a reliable record. It's meant to be taken as a historical record. That's why it's called this is the book or this is the record of the generations of Adam. This was a recorded uh, account. And it should not surprise us that recordings, written recordings of things actually took place. That should not surprise us whatsoever because Adam and his descendants were intelligent people. We saw that in Genesis chapter 4, verses 16 to 24. We saw that in the case of Cain. Cain built a city. We saw among his descendants that they kept livestock. They built or made lyres and pipes, musical instruments, and even implements of bronze and iron, verses 21 and 22 assert. So the intelligence of early man should not be disputed. It should not be mocked and ridiculed. It should be a a matter of historical fact. And as well, we also know from outside the Bible that there were other ancient civilizations dating at least to 2300 B.C. who had writings, who had cuneiform writings. The Sumerians, the Akkadians, they had cuneiform writing dating that far back at least. And as well, we have the Egyptians, the Egyptian civilization, Chinese civilization, Indus Valley civilizations dating back that far. And pyramids made or ziggurats made in Mesopotamia. We have these kinds of structures. We have all kinds of literature, all kinds of texts dating that far back. It should not surprise us that early man knew a lot and was very intelligent and sophisticated in many ways. And, and, and in some ways, more so than we are. We have not yet built a ziggurat. We have not yet built a pyramid, 
even in our generation. So there are aspects of ancient man that were intelligent. And so the writing or the keeping of records should not be a surprise or stunning to anyone. That's what 5 verse 1 asserts. As well, it's saying it is from Adam. It's saying it's giving the name of the first man, Adam. Adam is the name of the first man. We notice in Genesis 2.20, when Adam's name first occurred as a proper noun or as a proper name, as the name of a specific individual. Genesis 2.20, God, by the Holy Spirit and through the hand of Moses, tells us in verse 20, And that man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. That means that God is the one who named Adam, Adam. He named the first man that, thereby signifying God's authority over Adam. Furthermore, it says in chapter 5, verse 1, In the day when God created man, he, na he made him in the likeness of God. In the day when God created man, when he created man that day, the sixth day, according to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, as well in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25, and also Genesis 2, 7, we know that Genesis 2 is a detailed description of some of the events that occurred on day 6 of creation. So in the day when God created man, in the time when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. When God created man. When he created man or mankind, he created man in the likeness of God. That is, man was created in the likeness of God, not the animals, not the birds, not the beasts, not the wild beasts, not the domestic beasts, no beast, no plant, nothing was created in the likeness of God. Only man was created in the likeness of God. We know that from Genesis 1 verses 26 and 27 where it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. There we have a reiteration, or the first iteration, and then our reiteration in Genesis 5, that God created man... In his own image, in the image of God, he created him. He calls man him in the singular, as he does here in Genesis 5, verse 1. He, God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. We note that here in 5.1 as well, in 5.3, it says, in the likeness. It uses the term likeness. I believe that likeness is merely a brief way of saying that man is in the image of God. I don't think it is saying something else about man's nature. Image of God or likeness of God, these two phrases are meant to assert the same thing. That we have capabilities, rational capabilities, volitional capabilities, emotional capabilities, uh, capabilities of fellowship, and we possess a soul... We possess a soul, an immaterial, invisible soul that is different. All of these characteristics are different 
from animals, from plants, from rocks. We are different from everything else in that sense. That's the sense in which we are in the likeness of God. Likeness or image of God does not have to do with our material nature. It does not have to do with us being physical beings. It's not as though God has two eyes, one nose, two ears, two hands, two feet, so forth. He is not like that. He is not a man. God is not a man. Numbers 23, 19. He's not a man. 1 Samuel 15, 29. He's not a man. He does not have bodily characteristics, bodily features. God in his essential nature, in his substance, in his being, does not have human characteristics like that. He is spirit, as it says in John 4, 24. God is spirit. God is spirit. That means he's invisible, immaterial. According to Luke 24, 36 to 39, Jesus said, See my hands and, and feel, uh, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see me have. They thought he was a spirit or a ghost that materialized in some kind of marvelous, miraculous, glorious way to, to them. But no, he was not that. He was not immaterial. He was material, and he offered for them to touch him to see that he actually was material. There, Jesus gives a definition. A spirit does not have flesh and bones. God in his nature does not have flesh and bones. So when it says that we or man is created in the likeness or image of God, it has to do with our immaterial part, our immaterial substance, our soul, our invisible, internal, inner person. Furthermore, verse 2, he created them male and female. He created them. Man, he uses that term in the singular, but man is composed of two parts, two sexes, male and female. These are the two created in the image and likeness of God. We have to observe by this that there is not male, female, and 70 others, or however many people want to invent, there are not two plus many more. There's just two. In the Bible, this is the way the Creator, the Almighty Creator of heaven and earth, who created all of us, this is the way He created humans. He's also created animals this way. There are only two, male and female. We also note that females, just as males, are in the image and likeness of God. It's not right for us to say that only males are in the image of God, not the female. And it's also not right for us to say females are in the image of God and not males. Because in one way or another, one ideology or another, one movement or another, one societal uh, uh, adoption or custom to another. Whatever people say, it's not males that are in the image of God, not females. And it's not females who are in the image of God and not the males. We both are in the image of God. We both have value. We both have worth. We both are sinful and we both are redeemable, male and female. Further, he says in verse 2, and he blessed them. He blessed them. God blessed the male and the female. This is an allusion to Genesis 1, 28. After he created the male and the female, 
intending for them to be married, which we find in Genesis 2, 2, 22 to 25. Here we see 128. This was God's statement, God's blessing, and actually a command on day 6 to both the male and the female. Genesis 1, 28. And God blessed them, the male and the female, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. He gave them the blessing of procreation and the blessing of rulership over the rest of the earth. This is the blessing that God bestowed upon the male and the female. And yet this blessing is going to be in terms of procreation and abundance, having children, offspring, it will have to be experienced through obedience. The blessing of God to the male and the female would be and should be experienced through obedience, not disobedience, because if there's disobedience, that implies a curse, the opposite of a blessing. Well, then he also says in verse 2, chapter 5, verse 2, and named them man in the day when they were created. He named both the male and the female man. He did not name them human or people or humankind or something like that. There are many, many deviations from what the Bible asserts. Right here, it says male and female are called man. We might also say mankind but to distinguish us from animals and plants and rocks and water and so forth. We are distinguished from them because we are called man or mankind. This means that this common noun in the Hebrew language, which is translated here, Adam. Adam is what God used to describe male and female among humans. He called the two of them Adam. He also gave the name Adam as a proper noun or proper name to the man, to Adam. This is not by mistake. This is all intentional. He did this because everyone, as it says from Acts 17, 26, he made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. He made from one. He made from Adam everyone else who exists. That's why Adam has the name Adam, and that's why Adam is also called man, or we are all called man because we all come from Adam, whose name means man. Now, don't be surprised or, or wondering, perplexed, how could that be? Uh, what we have, for example, in English, some men have the name Clay, do they not? Clay as their first name. They have the name clay, but we also know clay to be that which is from the ground, the dirt, the moist dirt that is of the ground. So there is an example of a proper name coming from a common noun, or they, they have a relationship. They are of the, at least we know they are of the same spelling. They are of the same pronunciation. We know that at least. So in the Hebrew language, this is what God has done, but to signify, to assert that male and female are all coming from Adam. And as well, we have this reiterated in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 
1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 7. 1 Corinthians 11, 7. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. He says in verse 7 that he, man, is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. He means that, not that the woman does not have the image of God, what he means is that the woman reflects the man, the man's glory. And for that matter, as he will say later in verse 11, however, in the Lord neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Verses 11 and 12. There he's asserting that we all have our origin, whether male or female, from Adam and Eve and all of their descendants. This is the way it is. And there is this unity, there is this solidarity we all have with Adam and the first couple, Adam and Eve. All of us have that. This shows that it is necessary for us to understand that our basic existence is human or it is distinct from the animals. And this is, practically speaking, theologically speaking, ethically speaking, the only kind of distinction we need to have among humans, that ma any distinction that matters. That means that there's no need for us to deviate from this and to speak of different <clears throat> races and speak of, of one race superior to another race or one race inferior to another race, that kind of language should not exist. That kind of assumption should not exist. It should not be the case with anyone. We all come from one source. We all come from Adam, and all things, as he says in 1 Corinthians eleven twelve, all things originate from God. Another observation from verse 2 is that man is... A masculine term. In the Hebrew language, it is a masculine term. In the Greek language, it is also a masculine term. In the Greek New Testament and Greek Old Testament, it's a masculine term, grammatically masculine. But even grammatically and semantically, in English, it is a masculine term. Uh, but when I say grammatically, we don't have grammar as such, but we all know that if the term man is used, that the corresponding pronoun would be he, correct? Not she or they. Usually we would say if man is there, the corresponding grammatical pronoun would be a masculine he. That's the way it works in English. And also semantically, the actual meaning of the term man has to do either with the male or it has to do with male and female spoken collectively in a group setting. In a group setting or when you are just speaking or writing of them collectively. We would say man was created in the image of God. 
not the animals. We're speaking collectively as a group. All people, all humans are categorized as man created in the image of God. That's what we say. That's what we have said in English historically, but not currently. Not currently. Currently, those who are contentious and those who are undermining the Bible, feminism, and all that is associated with feminism, feminism seeks to destroy these things that we have just said in Genesis chapter 5. Feminism seeks to undermine it. It seeks to, in the name of equality, put females above males and have them dominate over males and subjugate males. In the name of equality, they say we should not use the term man to describe a group of male and females. We should say humans. We should say they. We, sh we cannot say guys. We have to say guys and gals. S such language they use. And in fact, instead of speaking generically as English has historically done and say, he who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being shall flow fountains of living waters. He who believes in me. Instead of saying that, we should say, whoever believes in me, the one who believes in me, or they who believe in me, those who believe in me. They try to get away from any kind of notion, any kind of assertion that the original language has the masculine gender or the masculine meaning for the masculine gender. They try to get away from all such connections when that is illegitimate. Grammatically, it is illegitimate. A true scholar would not assert that we can and should translate the grammatical masculine and the semantical masculine of these passages of the Old Testament and the New Testament in ways that are generic, in ways that are avoiding the masculine sense. They should not assert that. When they do so, they're doing it contrary to the evidence. They're not being true to the label that they have, that they are scholars, that they are authors, that they are professors. They're not living up to that fact. If they were fair-minded, if they were objective, as they present themselves to be, if they were truly objective, they would not come to the conclusion that we should never say, he who believes in me, such as from John 7, 37 to 39. They would never come to that conclusion. So we should not come to that conclusion, let alone whenever we are speaking generically to alternate between she and he or to use exclusively she in discourse, which some people today do. When they're speaking generically, they just say she or they will just say she and he or they'll say he, she or they'll come up with another pronoun. They come up with another pronoun to avoid saying he when we shouldn't do so. We shouldn't do so because of the history of the English language. We also shouldn't do so because especially the Bible. The Bible does not do so. The Bible does not do so because God by his spirit has ordained the Bible to be written in every word that is presented. Matthew 5, 17 to 20. Truly I say to you, heaven and earth uh, uh, shall not pass away until the smallest letter or stroke passes away from the law. The smallest letter or stroke shall not pass away from the law until heaven and earth pass away. These words of God, every little bit of these words of God, remain as they are intact with their meaning until the new heavens and the new earth are made.
So that's the way we should be. It's okay to say man when you're speaking of male and female in a corporate sense. Further, verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. When he was 130 years old, we know from chapter 4, verse 25, that Seth was not his first son. We don't know which son he was, which number, which number in the order of the children he was. We don't know that. But it does say in chapter 4, verse 25, And Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. Cain killed him. There is repeated the names of the two sons from earlier in chapter 4, chapter 4, verses 1 to 8, when Cain and Abel are named, they were born, and there was that contention that led to the murder of Abel from Cain. So, at least, this is the third son. We don't know which order, but likely soon after, um, Abel was murdered. So, then, that's one thing to note, that Seth is not the firstborn, he's not the secondborn, or uh, like that. Perhaps he is the thirdborn. However, it also says that Seth was created in his own likeness according to his image. Here we have the reassertion of what we saw in Genesis 1, 27. The image and likeness of God. When the Bible speaks like that, it's speaking of God and humans having similar characteristics that God gave to the created humans. And then we notice it's transferred from Adam to Seth. It is transferred from Adam to Seth, which means that Seth and his descendants, we know that his descendants because we just read in 1 Corinthians 11, 7 to 9 and 11 and 12 that we all possess the image of God. As well, James 3, 9 says that men are created in the likeness of God. That we all are created in the likeness of God. James 3, 9. Which also means that throughout the Bible, throughout the history of man, we are all created in the image of God. It's not an image that was exclusive to Adam and Eve. It's not an image that was exclusive to them or even just to Adam. It was something that was transferred to his descendants. To Seth here in chapter 5, verse 3. In fact, even to Noah and his descendants in chapter 9, verses 1 to 7, where it is reiterated that Noah and his descendants would have the image of God. And then in 1 Corinthians 11, 7 to 9, 11, 12, and James 3, 9, in all these places throughout Scripture, the image of God is retained in man, in people. Not animals, but in them. That's important to note, so that we not denigrate man, we not consider him lower, and not put him on the level of animals after the entrance of sin and death in the world. He is not on the same level as animals. It is murder to put an innocent human life to death. Right. But it's not murder 
to put an animal to death, either for consumption or for protection. It's not murder to put an animal to death. Furthermore, even though the image and likeness of God have been transferred to Adam's descendants, it is not the same as it was when Adam and Eve were first created. When they were first created in the garden, Genesis chapter 2, and before the fall occurred in Genesis 3, they possessed a perfect, a perfect, spotless, sinless, innocent image that was not corrupted, was not marred, was, was not infested with the poison of sin. Nothing like that was there in Adam and Eve when they were first created. Now, since they sinned in Genesis chapter 3, they did, and all of their descendants do, have a corrupted image of God. We have sin that has marred and tarred and stained and poisoned everything about us. We possess the image of God. We still have the ability to commune with God, but it is something that needs to be overcome. The sin has to be overcome before we can be rightly related to God which takes place when the Holy Spirit changes the heart, produces faith and repentance in us, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, repentance toward God, Acts 20, 21. This is necessary for us to be reconciled to God, to have peace with Him, and to have our image restored, gradually restored now from conversion to coffin. And then when we have con uh, consummation, when we see Christ face to face, then it will be restored to the full. This is what is implied and said in Colossians 3, 10 and 11, that we are being transformed into the image of Christ. We are being transformed after our conversion to the image of Christ. Next, let's see verses 4 and 5. Then the days of Adam, after he became the father of Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters, he lived 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. This verse shows us that Adam and Eve did not merely have the three sons that are named, Cain, Abel, and Seth. They had other sons and daughters. The text of Scripture does not give us any specifics on how many they had. It does not give us. There are Jewish, ancient Jewish writers who have said how many but we don't have a specific enumeration and further names here in the biblical text, whether in Genesis or elsewhere. It is likely, since they lived to be very long, and since this was close to the time of creation, that their potency, the men, and the fertility of the women was prolonged. We don't know for how long, but we know, for, for example, with Adam, that at least to the age of 130, he was able to beget a son, to beget a child, to the age of 130. And he, but he's not the longest. We notice in verse 18, Jared lived 162 years, and he became the father of Enoch. So at least until the age of 162, there. And then in the case of Methuselah, verse 25, he lived... Um, 187 years and became the father of Lamech. 
And in verse 28, Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. There, at least it was that long that they were able to have children. So, in that span of time, we can imagine that all of these patriarchs, though only one son is named, and the refrain is, for most of them except for Noah, that they all had sons and daughters, other sons and daughters, it is likely that they had tens or twenties or thirties or forties or fifties or more of children during their time that they could have children. They had many children. That we should note, so that Adam and Eve did not merely have those only, those three that are named, as well as their descendants, all from Adam until the time of Noah. Furthermore, it says in verse 5, So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. It says he lived to be 930 years. Now, some wonder whether these years are literal years. Are they literal years, regular years, years as we know them to be? Some have wondered. I believe that the scripture plainly read expects us to consider them the same as our years. The same as ours. Why do we say so? For example, at the end of the chapter, when it mentions Lamech lived 182 years, became the father of a son, that son is Noah. Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one shall give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands, arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. Then Lamech lived 595 years after he became the father of Noah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We here have Noah, a descendant or son of Lamech, and Noah, his age and is mentioned in verse 32, the age of Lamech is mentioned in the same context. So we naturally assume that whatever the text is saying about Adam, it's saying about Lamech, it's also saying about Noah, that these ages are the same in terms of reckoning the years, we should reckon them like this. And it should not surprise us that they were able to reckon, that they did reckon, that, and they did record what these ages were. Why? Because in Genesis chapter 1, God told us the reason for the sun, the moon, and the stars, or at least one reason for them, in verse 14. Verse 14, Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs, and for seasons, and for days, and years. Signs, seasons, days, and years. Why? To keep a calendar. That's one purpose, right? The days and the years, to keep a calendar. And that's what they did in Genesis chapter 5. They kept the calendar. And this calendar relates to Adam, Lamech, and Noah. Now, furthermore with Noah, furthermore with Noah, chapter 7, chapter 7, verse 6. Now, Noah was 600 years old when the flood of water came upon the earth. 
He was 600 years old, it says, when the flood came, which means that right before the flood, the way that they're reckoning his age is the same as those previous centuries and even millennia before, okay? That's the case. We note that from chapter 7 and verse 6. Then, chapter 8, chapter 8, verse 13. Now it came about in the 601st year, in the first month, on the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. Then Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. Here we know it's connected to the life of Noah in the 601st year, in the first month, and it says in the second month, the 27th day of the month. We have even the day specified and the months in the case of when he removed the covering, when they disembarked, and so forth. Still connected to the lifespan and the reckoning of the years of Noah's life. Okay? And it does not end there. Because we know in Genesis 9, many years after the flood, Genesis 9, 28, and Noah lived 350 years after the flood. Even after the flood, Noah's life is reckoned in the same way as it was before the flood and during the flood. So all the days of Noah's were 950 years and he died. Genesis 9, 28 and 29. It still does not end there because of chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 10. Chapter 11, remember, 10 and following is the genealogy of Abraham, going from Noah, Noah's son Shem, to Abraham. So now we have our own era, not the pre-flood era, not the immediate post-flood era, but now we have more in relation to our own era. This would be about 2000 to 2300 BC when we're speaking of Shem and then Abraham. Okay? So chapter 11, verse 10. These are the records of the generations of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and became the father of Arpachshad two years after the flood. Two years after the flood, they're still reckoning age the same way as they did before the flood, and they continued to do so until we reach the time of Abraham towards the end of chapter 11. Back to chapter 5 then. When it says that Adam lived to be 930 years, that's what it means. It does not mean that there's some exaggeration. It doesn't mean it's mythological, that it's a fable or legendary or anything like that. There's no religious fiction here. This is what actually happened in time and space, historically speaking. The Bible considers it that way within the narrative, the historical narrative of the book of Genesis. None of those passages I just read to you from chapter 5 or chapter 6 and 7, chapter 7, sorry, chapter 7, verse 6, or in chapter 8 or chapter 9 or even chapter 11. These are either genealogies or they are narratives or narratives embedded in historical um, passages that are meant to be taken as is, as plain and evident that this is how long they lived. Now, it 
may be that before the flood they lived this long because the effects of sin were less and the environment may have been more suitable for the longevity of mankind. We do know that the longer sin is around that, and the more per, that it permeates, then the greater des- destruction that it wreaks. We do know that. When sin is unabated, then it, is, it prospers and it permeates and it, and it demolishes everything that it touches. So likely that was at least the case with Adam and his descendants before the flood. Lastly, verse 5, and he died. Genesis 5, 5, and he died. That is the refrain of each of these patriarchs in this chapter. Except, of course, for Noah, because Noah picks up until chapter 9, 28 and 29. And then when it mentions him, as it does here, about how long he lived after and how long his lifetime was, and then it says, and he died. And Noah also died. Death is the inevitable result of the transgression of the law of God. In Genesis 2, 15 to 17, especially verses 16 and 17, God gave the first commandment to them and to Adam before Eve was created. The second one was, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and rule over the earth. That was the second one to Adam and Eve. But the first one was to Adam, and that was, from every tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is in the middle of the garden, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Because they transgressed that first commandment, the single solitary commandment, the covenant of grace as it's known. I'm sorry, the covenant of works. The covenant of works as it's known. If they had kept that, then there would have been no need for the work of Christ because their own work would have been sufficient. There would have been no need for redemption. But because they transgressed that covenant of works, now the covenant of grace or salvation in Christ is necessary. They transgressed it, and as God said, they would die. They died immediately in their spirit or soul. Their inner man immediately died, and their natural man or their physical man, material man, it began to die and underwent a slow death. In the case of Adam, he lived to be 930 years old. In our case, we live to be 70 or 80 years old, if it's a regular lifespan, barring any kind of accident or tragedy, right? So because of that, that's the way God has created us. He created us to die, to be dead immediately, spiritually, in Adam, because Adam died spiritually, and then physically as life goes on. Because Adam was created from dust or the clay, and he will return to the dust, just as we will return to the dust. Then in verses 6 to 20, we read of the same patriarchs. These same patriarchs, are, or the patriarchs from Adam until Noah, we read of them when I said the same. These are mentioned in First Chronicles chapter 1. And also in Luke chapter 3, verses 23 to 38. In Luke 3, 23 to 38. And this also reiterates the historical veracity of our account. 
because Luke, as he tells us in Luke 1, 1 to 4, he's writing so that Theophilus may know the exact truth of the things he has been taught. To have a written account of the exact truth of the things he has been taught. And in Luke 3, 23 to 38, we have the genealogy of Christ. That means that if we are dealing with fictional characters in Genesis 5, then Jesus would also have to be a fictional character, and his parents fictional characters. So we cannot give up on the historical truthfulness and accuracy of Genesis chapter 5, which is repeated in 1 Chronicles 1 and as well in Luke 3, 23 to 38. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.